0: Hi guys, welcome back to Elsa and Ria's Emergency Room Podcast. Today, we'll be reading chapters 10 and 11 of Deadliest Enemy, Our War Against Killer Germs by Michael T. Osterholm and Mark Olshaker. This chapter, chapter 10, is titled, Gain of Function and Dual Use, The Frankenstein Scenario. My name's Ria, and here's my co-host, Elsa.
1: Hi guys, my name's Elsa, and... This chapter focuses on the mishaps that can happen from too much curiosity in the field of science. It starts off with a quote from Mary Shelley, who wrote the book Frankenstein. You seek for knowledge and wisdom as I once did, and I ardently hope that the gratification of your wishes may not be a serpent to sting you as mine has been. And what I took away from this quote is that we always say knowledge is power, but sometimes ignorance is bliss. We often hear the quote, curiosity killed the cat, and I think in the field of science this is very applicable because we're always trying to further our knowledge, as we will soon talk about in this chapter, and a lot of times this can get us into more trouble than good.
0: Elsa, did you ever read the book Frankenstein in high school?
1: No, I didn't actually. Uh, I got lucky and I didn't have to read it. I heard it was a pretty hard read. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
0: i uh actually i feel like i might have heard that too because i remember one of the english teachers might have read it but uh we read the strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde um which i guess has that same theme of monsters but not really monsters
1: yeah i wish i read it because i didn't even realize that frankenstein was not the monster itself, but the doctor who created right isn't that right
0: Yeah, I think the people portrayed or saw Frankenstein as a monster, and that's why he was known to be a monster, not because he actually was, but because that's how everyone thought of him to be. So, like, they probably saw, like, his creations as seeming to be evil, even though he did it from good intentions, like, maybe trying to better um, the advancements in science, but maybe they just came out to seem evil, which is why they thought he was evil. Oh, okay,
1: okay. I want to start off the discussion for this chapter with a quote directly from the first paragraph: "Scientific adventurism is a double edged sword, and the same labors and discoveries have opposite effects depending on how they are handled and by whom and I thought this quote um uh, perfectly explained the entirety of this chapter actually because it's saying how each um adventure or each like discovery in science we have is it can be used for good or for evil. For example, like genetic engineering, it could be used for good that we can like find cures for cancers, or it could be used for bad where we're mutating and creating a whole new species potentially, even though we haven't quite gotten there yet. And it's saying how this all depends on who is handling these new advancements and how they're handling it. And this is also seen with dual use research which is when there's life science research that could be directly misapplied and pose threat to public health and safety, which is another quote from the text. And one of the big things that can be used to pose harm on the public are microbes. And there are many factors that favor microbes surviving our control measures, Um, and our control measures include vaccines, treatments, and things of that nature. And so... There's hyperevolution, which is the result of microbial engineering, which is where we manipulate the gene of the microbe. And so this can speed up the evolution process for the microbe by thousands of years, which maybe wouldn't have even been possible if we hadn't uh, gone in there ourselves and manipulated it. So this creates chimeras. Chimeras are when you take some parts of some viruses and insert it into another virus. So why are chimeras so bad? Well, it's because... Basically, think of it like an animal, which you take bits and parts, like the most dangerous bits and parts of each animal and put them all together to create a super animal or a super monster. And that's basically what a chimera could be. It's not necessarily always the case, but that's what it could be. And something like that, getting exposed to the general public could cause a pandemic or an epidemic or an endemic that we might not be able to stop or survive.
0: And then Dr. Osterholm goes on to talk about how these chimeras may seem complicated in terms of their creation, but technology and science has advanced so much in the past few years, where it's quite possible that these chimeras can be created by um, what you would think of as amateurs, like maybe DIY scientists or even high school microbiology classes, if they you know really know what they're doing. Um, and so. You know, he says that to alarm the public that, you know, this should be a concern. And he talks about how these different genetically manipulated microbes could definitely be transmitted to a human. And um, one example of showing how this is possible is CRISPR. So CRISPR, I think we might have talked about this briefly uh, last season. But um, now that we took genetics and uh, know it a little bit more in detail... Uh, CRISPR stands for clustered, regularly interspaced, short, palindromic repeats, and basically, um, bacteria when they are infected with a, let's say, a virus, right? um, The bacteria can kind of store information of that viral particle's nucleic acid, whatever uh, it's coming in with, and so it, it stores it to memory, you can think of it doing that. And then inserts a cop like that copy of new genetic material within its own dna it repeats at like regular intervals in about 40 percent of bacteria and so basically you can think of this as being similar to our own immune system where um let's say another viral particle with the same genetic information attacks again now the bacteria has replicated And taken those segments of DNA, which were of the initial viral particle, and has attached it to a Cas protein, which then uh, you can think of it as being like immune cells in the body. And so basically, like, when it sees another viral particle attack, it then slices that viral particle so that it can no longer function. So two scientists actually recognized how this process could be applied for other purposes. So what they realized is that we can use this cast technology to not take out any viral particles, but to take out pieces of our own genetic material and replace it with new genes that may confer a different kind of trait or a different version of that trait. So this could be used for, let's say, if someone has a faulty gene that causes lack of insulin production, then um, we can basically use this Cas9 system to cut out that gene and replace it with something that will be able to produce insulin. So you can see how it's great for things like uh, diseases or health conditions that can now be resolved due to CRISPR. But of course, the other side of this, of this double-edged sword is um, the fact that you can also use it for things like cutting out minor inconveniences, like let's say your child or you want your child to have blue eyes instead of brown eyes. So then it's kind of like you're playing God is the argument. And this is an argument to why uh, maybe we shouldn't be so willing to use CRISPR so quickly.
1: Do you also think that we as humans aren't fully understanding what could go wrong if we make a mutation that gets passed down through generations?
0: Yeah, so I actually talked about this um for a class assignment in ethics. And I think like because of evolution and everything we learned from Dr. Moalam last season, um, traits are you never know what's going to happen let's say 100 years down the line and you don't know which traits are going to be favorable and disfavorable so let's say right now it might not be favorable for I I don't even know for um, someone to have a peanut allergy let's say right but let's say somewhere down the line um, you would want that allergy so now you basically just weeded it out of the population and you know now you wish you had it, so it's like that's just one small example of how we don't really know all the different we can't predict the future, and so um it it definitely is worth being a little bit more careful, I would say,
1: yeah, like we talked about it last season, how being diabetic actually saved the lives of all the our like early ancestors during the ice age,
0: and imagine
1: they had CRISPR during that time, and they had meted all of them out. Maybe we wouldn't even exist today. So
0: exactly. Stuff like that. Yeah. And that's why experts in the field um, feel that sometimes this gene editing can be used for diabolical purposes and thus can become a global danger. So it's just one example of how science can go awry and cause more harm than it can help.
1: After World War II, there was the threat of biowarfare, but it wasn't until after 9-11 that it got to be such a large issue with the anthrax attacks um, all throughout the U.S. So after hearing this, you might be thinking, is all biotechnology bad? The answer is no, from Professor Fink from MIT. And he he says that dual-use research of concern should be carefully examined, And it should be monitored closely so that it's not used by the wrong people for the wrong things. The National Science Advisory Board of Biosecurity, or the NSABB, was formed with 25 voting members who had varying expertise in microbiology, infectious disease, lab biosafety, etc. And their first hot topic was in 1981 with the H1N1 virus, which was created and put into ferrets to observe the transmissibility, how the illness was caused, and the severity of the illness. And when the article was initially sent to the NSABB to see if it could get published, there were questions about what would happen if the virus broke out from the lab. Um, And that's because they had to recreate this virus to put it into the ferrets. Um, And two things were learned. One is that one strain of the H1N1 virus would not provide protection from another strain. And the influenza virus is something that's always constantly mutating, so you constantly need new vaccines. Artificially constructed viruses have the potential for a global catastrophic effect. And what this means is that the virus that was created in the lab, it is different from any other virus, and so nobody would have immunity to it, and it could have the potential for a pandemic, or it could have the potential to cause a pandemic.
0: Right. And then the same thing was seen with the mutated influenza virus H5N1. So the same thing was happening. They uh, changed up the code a little bit and um, a little bit about H5N1. This is considered the grandfather of bird flu viruses, and it was first introduced into the population in 1990- 1997 in Asia. And mainly it affects birds, um, and rarely does it affect humans, but when it does, it can cause severe disease with case fatality rates of 30 to 70%. The good thing is, though, that as of date, it hasn't maintained the ability to be transmitted from human to human. So when scientists mutated this H5N1, they mutated it so that it could be transferred between ferrets through a respiratory route, so, you know, through the air. So now, even though we're talking about ferrets here, it still was frightening that there was this possibility that the same would apply to humans. So again, let's say accidentally, or maybe even purposefully with someone with malintentions, they released this H5N1, this mutated version, into the population, and it had that effect where it did cause this virus to be transmitted from human to human, again, we could have been dealing with a nasty pandemic.
1: Yeah, and just to put it into perspective um, with what's going on today, the H5N1 virus like Ria said had a 30 to 70% fatality. The coronavirus or the COVID-19 virus that we're experiencing right now only has less than a 1% fatality rate. Is that
0: right? Most cases are mild, 81% of them with a zero, so if you have a mild case, then you're gonna have a 0% fatality rate. Um, If you have a severe case of COVID-19, which 14% of people do, then there's a 49% fatality rate. And then if you have a critical case, which 5% of people do, then there's a fatality rate of 100%. Oh, and then overall the fatality rate is 2.3%. So next, knowing all of this information and how these modified viruses have the potential to really harm society catastrophically, um, there was the question of what the potential harm would be from publishing this data on how these two different viruses were mutated. Um, I think specifically, actually, it's just the H1N1. But, you know, so essentially... Would the publication cause more good than harm? Because would it allow others to um, make different breakthroughs in science knowing this information? Or would it allow different people to use this for evil intent, create a different kind of virus that is like super deadly? And um, as a side note, I think this is what people think about in terms of like a conspiracy theory for or one of the conspiracy theories of how, COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 came to be and so they say that it was created in a lab and then just let out and so um, while I guess this is a possibility because I mean it definitely is a possibility I just remember reading something or having someone tell me about something they read um, doing official research that if that were the case as kind of sad and funny it is to say it's not possible because whoever was making it could have made it better so that it could kill more people. Like we just said, it's a pretty low case fatality rate relatively. So definitely they could have, if they wanted to create something that was going to kill more people um, or disrupt, I mean, if their goal was to disrupt the, disrupt society, I think they did that pretty well. But I mean, um, I I guess if their intent was to kill a lot of people, then it's unlikely that COVID-19 was created in a lab.
1: I heard from a professor it couldn't have been created in a lab because the genome of the virus was too perfect like it was definitely mother nature creating it because when humans create something there's always a little kink in it or something like that and and so it's not possible it's like extremely unlikely that we created it in a lab
0: and released it. So when the NSABB were discussing whether this research should be published, initially they decided that only a very general high-level research manuscript summarizing the methods and results should be published. And that's a quote. Um, And I thought this was personally probably the smarter decision just because, I mean, if you can get across the main message without saying too much, that could be deadly then i think this is the best way to go what do you think
1: i agree with you i think um keeping things silent until there's a definite answer or if it's something that could potentially cause a lot of harm just keeping that silent and to
0: as little people as possible is always the best method to go about things right but there were a lot of critics when this decision was made and they basically said that um really there wasn't much risk to the public because there were already vaccines and antivirals in place and everyone could be quarantined if there was an exposure and yeah I see Elsa shaking her head but basically um, I also wrote down that's not as easy as it sounds clearly so um, you know while, while it was probably good thinking I just think now we, we see that it's not as easy
1: Yeah, I hope that uh, this pandemic that we're experiencing right now opens the eyes of all the world leaders to, you know, all the potential harms that we have that we're not really being prepared for.
0: And then those against complete publication then rebuttaled and said, well, you know, let's say there was an accidental or even intentional release. There could be a case of antigenic shift which we spoke about before and how um, a different or a completely different viral strain could be created by this released viral strain combining with some other viral strain out there and so this would create an even bigger mess and so essentially they decided that maybe they should just open up the conversation to other scientists that did not have any conflict of interest So this would be like biosecurity experts or just anyone um, outside the life sciences community. Because this is a really good point, because technically, if something were to happen, um, you know, it's the whole world being affected. So the whole world should have a say. Right.
1: I hadn't thought about that, but I see how the entire world is entitled to something or entitled to know something that could potentially affect them because for example with uh covid-19 they're saying that uh China knew about this in December and didn't warn the rest of the world of what could potentially happen and look where we are now an entire year later so you know that definitely
0: shows what not knowing can do to a country they they basically had to reverse their decision because there were powerful people there who said who basically were pressuring them into doing it So then eventually everything got published and, you know, so far so good, clearly. But um, it's just things like that that are a little scary. I think in any scenario,
1: it's hard to completely be sure that no one's getting the wrong information because it could be an inside job, you know. It could be the right people getting the information, but there's a wrong person in that right group. So we never know and it's always a
0: risk that we have to be willing to take. That's true too. And that's why Dr. Osterholm proposes that you should really just ask these two key questions. One, does the work have legitimate scientific purpose or can it be done safely without harming anyone? Um, And then two, if the work is worthwhile and can be conducted safely, should it be fully exposed to the public, including methods and results? So it's basically these questions that have to be asked for any instances in the future. So now Dr. Osterholm switches gears a little bit and he starts talking about influenza virus strains and then their history in the United States. So when the H1N1 showed up, it caused the pandemic of 18, 1918. And then after like things died down, it was still present every year as the seasonal flu. And the reason people weren't dying from it was because like everyone got it during the pandemic. So that's why it was like herd immunity at this point not herd immunity but like everyone had it so like that's why people weren't dying it was just a a small thing and then that it finally disappeared when the h2n2 came about and now this one wasn't a pandemic or anything it was just a new seasonal strain of the virus of the influenza and then same thing it stuck around
1: so in 1968 h3n2 appeared and h2n2 disappeared and then in 1977 in Asia, H1N1 reappeared and this didn't displace H3N2, which was already going around. And so there were basically two seasonal viruses that were circulating. And what was interesting about the H1N1 virus is that it was the same or basically the same as the one from 1957, um, so the same as 20 years ago. and. Researchers and scientists realized that if this virus had just been circulating and naturally came up, then it would have mutated by now. So because it was the same, they figured out that someone had to have tampered with it or have released it into the public unknowingly or knowingly. And later it was discovered that the Soviets had been trialing live virus vaccines and it had escaped. And that's why there was the H1N1 virus that was circulating. And so this shows how something being released into the public has already happened, and it can again happen, and it can have deadly consequences if it's not something that we're immune to or if it's something that we tampered with. And so ultimately, this chapter ends off with the note that even with the utmost care, even with the multiple walls of protection and lab safety and regulations that we use. Just a single mishap can be the cause of a deadly pandemic.
0: And yeah, as technology just gets better and better, um, the threat of this happening is going to become more eminent. So we just need to be careful, um, have our leading experts be careful, and really take care of the rest of society. And I guess a way to do this is just to make sure that All the people working on certain projects like this or getting access to information like this should be vetted to be should be trusted and respected in the sense that, you know, like their work has already been respected. People know them. People know that they wouldn't do anything wrong. Of course, everyone or it's easy to let some people fall through the cracks, which is unfortunate, but we're just doing the best we can is great. And yeah, Yeah. just anticipate and prepare. So next we have chapter 11 called Bio-Terror Opening Pandora's Box. And of course, it starts off with the famous quote. um, Half fearfully and half eagerly, she lifted the lid. It was only a moment and the lid was up only an inch. But in that moment, a swarm of horrible things flew out. They were noisome, abominably colored, and evil looking. For they were the spirits of all that was evil, sad, and hurtful. They were war and famine, crime and pestilence, spite and cruelty, sickness and malice, envy, woe, wickedness, and all the other disasters let loose in the world. So this is a quote of Pandora, a Greek goddess, I believe, or some Greek character, um, opening this box that another Greek god told her not to, and she did it anyway out of curiosity, And it ended up causing more harm than good. And I thought this
1: was very fitting to how bioterror works. Because similar to how all the evils were released into the world from Pandora's box. Viruses and other deadly pathogens can be released into the world from a small lab.
0: This chapter starts off with Dr. Osterholm talking about the anthrax attack, I guess, that happened right after 9-11. He, he was in the early works of like the project and just figuring out what was happening, who was doing it, why was it happening, and stuff like that. So, I mean, the first question that he and probably other epidemiologists or anyone who's working on the case asked was whether this was an isolated case with some environmental exposure to an infected animal or was this a malicious at- intent by a human terrorist. Oh, and they basically they realized that because it happened so soon after 9/11, it seemed unlikely that this was something environmental. It was more likely that this was happening because of a terrorist attack. The way it was happening was that letters were being mailed to important figures in society such such as members in government and um, basically the letters contained the lethal anthrax powder. And altogether, at least 22 people developed anthrax infections, 11 had uh, the life-threatening inhalation type, and 5 died, including 2 male workers.
1: It's crazy how something so simple, like a powder, can be so deadly. Many people thought that this terroristic attack was carried out by an organization, but it was actually just carried out by one biodefense Researcher at Fort Derrick, who was named Bruce Ivins. And he had mental health problems and later committed suicide. And the whole point of his attack was just to cause terror because that's what terrorists do. Because he was a biodefense researcher, he had access to the facility, which contained all the things he needed to carry out the anthrax attack. So, this is an example how the wrong people can get the wrong stuff and this can cause harm to the public.
0: And this is different from a regular terrorist attack that we're used to, um, because the cleanup is not nice and easy. Like, for example, Dr. Osterholm talks about how after 9-11, once it was done, they immediately started like cleaning up. Um, but with bioterrorism, you know, it's it's not that simple. People are still infected if something's released. In this case, it took a lot of cleanup and a lot of money to clean up and decontaminate the places that had the anthrax letters mailed to them or mailed through them then dr osterholm talks about how there have been different examples of using disease against populations throughout history so this whole concept of bioterrorism isn't really that new so the first example of this is in pontiac's war in 1763 where there was a militia commander william trent so yeah there was this militia commander william trent who sent the Ottawa Indians two blankets and a handkerchief at, straight from the smallpox hospital. Um, and so basically, his goal was to try and get this unsuspecting, inimmune population sick with smallpox. And that's actually what ended up happening. Oh, and then as a side note, uh, William Trent seems to be how Trent Trenton, New Jersey, got its name so it's a little sad how uh we named a huge city from someone who did something sad but i guess it's all like in the mindset of war and then also um this suggestion came from field marshal jeffrey amherst for whom the massachusetts college is named after so again naming someone who didn't do such a nice thing um or naming something after someone who didn't do such a nice thing but yeah side note (laughs) And there have been many
1: instances of anthrax being used to harm the public in history. For example, in both World War One and World War Two, it was found to be used. There are anthrax vials found in the captured German spies' luggage, and this had been intended to u- to be used against the Allies in World War One. And in World War Two, the Japanese planes had contaminated rice and fleas, which would infect whichever part of China that it landed on.
0: So, I guess the US was aware of these different instances and how bioterrorism was somewhat of a threat. But then President Nixon decided to cut the offensive bio program in 1969 because he didn't see the potential of biological weapons being a good method of. Uh, military aims so he decided to cut the offensive side of things and then instead wanted to just focus on biodefense research but meanwhile the soviets kept right on and you might be wondering why did the soviets keep just going so that's where the chimera project comes
1: in dr ken alivek from russia who has a md and a phd in microbiology was told by the u.s that we were still continuing with our expansion in all things deadly and we were set out to destroy russia basically and so russia just kept creating deadly pathogens and viruses and one of those um was the anthrax virus which had multiple strains and he said there were about 2000 different strains so that it could be as deadly as possible and they were both bomb and missile ready There's also the Venezuelan equine encephalitis. So this is a mosquito-borne virus that attacks the brain, and it also could be put into the smallpox vaccine. And the reason this is so dangerous is that if it could be put into the smallpox vaccine, then there isn't much time before it's put into actual smallpox itself, which we'll discuss later how deadly that will be. And basically, it's crazy how we have technology in classrooms today that we didn't have in top institutions 20 years ago. And this growth is great, but it also shows how there's danger everywhere. and It's not just large corporations or uh, people in Russia that we have to worry about. And a little bit more about anthrax. It's, it's a bacillus anthracis species, and it is an effective bioweapon because it doesn't transmit person to person but when it's dried it's like a weightless spore so it could could travel and also can last decades and evidence of this is found in the egyptian tombs because people who went into these egyptian tombs so they came into contact with these anthrax spores and after they inhaled it these spores resided in their lungs or gastrointestinal tract and these germinated and went back into the active form from the dormant uh spore form And inhalation causes pneumonia, which about 45 to 85% of untreated victims die from. Here's a statistic uh, from 1993 a small plane containing about 210 pounds of anthrax could kill more people than a Scud class missile carrying the hydrogen bomb. And so the hydrogen bomb can kill anywhere from 570,000 to 1.9 million people in 300 square miles of land and anthrax could potentially kill 1 to 3 million people under the same circumstances from a similar plane. And so basically all of this is showing how deadly anthrax is and how even the smallest amount of it or even just 200 pounds of it could wipe out millions of people. And you might be thinking if this is so deadly then we probably have so much security regarding anthrax. But we don't. And this was shown by the scientist named William Patrick, who carried around a vial of 7.5 grams of harmless bacterial culture, which looked exactly like anthrax. And he got away with it through all the security measures in airports and in official buildings. And so this shows how it's not really being looked out for. And this this could be extremely harmful to us because we aren't scanning for something that could wipe out a lot of people what do you think
0: yeah it's definitely crazy how he was able to carry around um this vial of powder which could essentially have been anthrax if it was someone else and you know nothing was done about it so it just highlights the fact again how easy a terrorist attack like this could really occur the next infectious disease dr osterholm wanted to talk about was smallpox so smallpox hasn't harmed anyone in about 40 years but it's still pretty scary considering the fact that it has killed more people than any other disease with a billion deaths so because we were able to create a vaccine and have everyone basically immunized against it so that there was also herd immunity maybe for those who couldn't afford this vaccine um we weren't currently producing vaccines i guess like in 1990 but then in 2014 vials marked variola or smallpox were discovered in an fda lab so essentially i mean what dr osterholm wants to say about this is how if there is a vial hidden somewhere um and there are probably more than this one that was discovered in 2014 basically someone could find it someone with Malintent, and then it could be released on the public. And now let's say that happens. Well, guess what? If we don't have any vaccine and this thing happens again, then um, those who, I guess, were who aren't vaccinated, it might just end up spreading to them and cause so much harm. And now let's say, okay, maybe the chances of that happening are small. Let's just say. Well, there is also the possibility of genetically engineering the smallpox virus. So this was seen in 2002 when a team was able to synthesize the polio virus from scratch, completely from scratch. It only had 7,500 base pairs, so this is considered relatively small. And basically, they were able to put it together just like that. So now, while smallpox has 186,102 base pairs... You would think that, okay, well, we should be in the clear, right? But with technology advancing, it's probably possible today, he says, that uh, even something like smallpox could be genetically engineered from scratch. It won't be easy because it's so big, but it's definitely possible. So now imagine if some terrorist scientist was able to do this, it would be basically game over. Yeah, that just shows how, like, if it gets into the wrong hands, it'd be so bad for us. Right. And then even to catch the terrorist would be difficult because there would be so much time in between the release of the virus and then from people getting infected to people realizing that, oh, okay, what we're dealing with here is smallpox, something that no doctor has ever seen before in person, just heard about. And so it'd be definitely crazy to uh, experience this happening. And hopefully it never happens. But I mean... So, Dr. Osterholm, and this is where I want to give a shout-out to Mr. Mark Olshaker, the author of the book, because he did a really good job highlighting this example, um, and it's really vivid and definitely scary, so I'll do my best to summarize it, but essentially in 2003, there was this one 10-year-old female patient who was admitted to a hospital in Illinois, and eventually they figured out that she was suffering from monkeypox, so... You know, luckily, monkeypox, while it is in that same family of pox viruses, um, it's not as lethal. And because we in the United States, I'm assuming, have gotten the smallpox virus, um, that means that we have immunity to other pox viruses. So it wasn't too big of a worry. But the way she got this virus was because it was actually transferred through species. So so the way she became infected was that she had a pet prairie dog that was at a pet store with some Gambian pouched rats. And so it turns out these rats had been shipped from Ghana. So essentially they're the ones who are probably carrying this monkeypox. Um but basically this this whole situation is just to highlight the fact that okay now let's say instead of monkeypox it happened to be smallpox. With smallpox, victims won't even know they've been attacked for at least one week. So Technically, that means the incubation period is at least seven days. And just to compare that to COVID-19, uh, COVID's incubation period is two days. You know, when you think about how something can be super infectious, it's when you're in- you're spreading the virus without knowing that you have the virus, which is why we talk about COVID-19 being um, pretty dangerous in terms of its infection rate, because like people can be... Uh, Unknowingly and asymptomatic and then still be spreading the virus. And luckily, that's only for a period of two days. But now imagine that you go seven days without knowing that you have a virus and you're just spreading it everywhere. Right. So now let's go back to the the story. Um, So now let's say this this girl has smallpox. She goes to the hospital or maybe a doctor's office. Right. Let's say there are a lot of patients. Right. Because now we know that it's spreading everywhere. So they all go to the doctor's office, hospital emergency rooms. They have like the flu, um, headaches, backaches, high fever, nausea, vomiting. So most people or most doctors are going to think, okay, maybe it's just the flu. Let's uh, send you home to some bed rest and let's see how you do. Right. Now, while most people might just follow that advice, there might be some people who are worried and want to get a second opinion, so maybe they'll go get some tests done. So when they do tests, it's going to come back negative for problems like meningitis, um, maybe even staph infections or any foodborne things, but nothing's going to pan out. But now, eventually, nothing's going to work. This disease is just going to become worse. There are going to be rashes. So now the doctors are going to start thinking about, okay, did you travel anywhere outside the United States? Do you maybe have, like, some some issue that's not known to the U.S.? So they might give some antibiotics, to think it, thinking that it's some bacterial infection. But then that's not going to pan out. And eventually, the body is going to develop these pustules, which are then going to... Which are then going to break open and then start oozing. And now this is the point where doctors are going to completely stop and not believe what they're seeing. Dr. Osterholm says that none of them will ever have seen an actual case of smallpox before. So they're not going to be able to comprehend what they're seeing. But they're going to immediately get on the phone with the CDC, and you can see where it goes from there. There's just going to be a crazy pandemic, and I would go so far as to say definitely worse than COVID-19. And then so you can imagine all the different things that will happen on a societal front where people wouldn't be able to get the vaccine fast enough because if there are no reservoirs where it's stored, that's a problem. So we're going to have to start pumping it out really quickly. But in the meanwhile, people are going to be dying, people are going to be scared, no one's going to want to go out, drugstores are going to be looted. So now we're talking, like, apocalyptic things that we see in TV shows, which uh, I'm surprised. I don't know, uh, did did you hear anything about drugstores being looted in the beginning of COVID-19?
1: No, there are just mass, um emptying of shelves for, like, soap and hand sanitizer and, the basic necessities i didn't hear about any looting but also this was during a lot of other things where looting was going on so i don't know
0: yeah true i was always surprised that that never happened cuz i mean just from watching the movies and stuff you expect it to be apocalyptic like that but i'm glad that didn't happen obviously dr osterholm talks about how a black market might form for the vaccine the president will try to keep everybody calm and everyone's going to ask them like you know when can things be all right again and they won't have an answer which are all things we saw during this pandemic even if it's not to that scale i feel like
1: we were just pressing the president and all the leaders for answers even though it's hard to come up with answers when there's so little information
0: right yeah so essentially it would just be one big mess
1: So basically from all this, what we're learning is that the U.S. is severely underprepared for biological warfare threats. And terrorists can take advantage of this and coordinate an attack on the U.S. so that they catch us in our weakest time. And so preparedness um, against a possible attack requires not just money, but also organization and planning. And it needs unity from the world leaders, from scientists, and from the general public. And also, we can't just be reactive to these threats. This means that we can't just do everything in hindsight or after the fact. We need to be proactive and try to ensure that these things don't happen. It might not be easier to prevent something, but it's much better to prevent something than try to clean up the mess that, um, like Rhea said earlier, could take days or maybe years to fully clean up. And how would we go about coordinating something so there are no clear-cut laws there's no rules or regulations or official guidance that we can look for Um, but there is the environmental protection agency that could hopefully guide us in the right direction
0: yeah and I know we sound like broken records always talking about being prepared but essentially that's really the only thing we can do like we need money but we also need a lot of organization and planning to prevent certain things like this from happening and it really just takes One organization to be at the forefront of leading this preparation.
1: And so Dr. Osterholm ends with a quote from the same story about the Pandora's box. At the bottom of the box was a quivering thing. Its body was small, its wings were frail, but there was a radiance about it. Somehow Pandora knew what it was, and she took it up, touched it carefully, and showed it to Epimetheus. It is hope, she said. Do you think it will live? asked Epimetheus basically it's our responsibility to hold on to hope we can't ever lose hope and we have to keep looking for a possible answer
0: yeah everything might seem very scary but we just have to keep hopeful that we can get ahead of these things and if not that we'll be able to pull through at the end of it and just do the best we can to protect each other I
1: learned a lot about biological warfare and the potential harms and I hope you guys stick around for next week's episode. Thank you. Bye guys. <laughs>